Today I'm sharing the final installment in a series of sermons we've done the last five weeks entitled, How Great is Our God? It comes from Isaiah chapters 40 through 45, and one of the themes there is the greatness of God. You see, the background of these chapters is, it applies to a time in Israel when they were had been carried into exile in Babylon. They were, their homeland had been destroyed, they were away from home, they were refugees in a foreign country, and they were sort of down. And they were depressed, and they may have doubted, is our God really the God? I mean, He didn't keep us in our homeland, and here we are in a foreign God, and they've got their gods. And they were, there was doubt, and there was discouragement, and in that context, Isaiah gives them a fresh, encouraging vision of how great our God is. I think we're sort of in similar times, don't you? Some people are sort of down and discouraged. We've been living with this pandemic for months, and many of us have prayed, oh God, would you deliver us from this? And, and it's still hanging on, and, and you wonder, couldn't God really do anything about this? Is he really there? Does he really hear? And so maybe in your personal life, you need a fresh vision of how great our God is, and that's what we're about in this series. Well, today, we share in closing a foundational truth about God, about his greatness, and that is that God is the creator of everything. There are two names for God that we learn in these chapters that I want to share with you. We've been learning as we've understood sort of the nature of God, how it's revealed through his names or his titles. Well, today there are two that we want to look at, and that is that God is creator, Isaiah says, and God is maker. So those are the two titles that we're going to look at that are revealed about God here. First of all, let's talk about the one that God is creator. The word create means to bring something into existence. So in the Bible, only God is the subject of this verb. It never says in the Bible that humans create. It only says in the Bible God. God is always the subject of the verb create in the Bible because God is the only one who can bring something into existence. You see, here's what the Bible tells us, that the one true God has been here forever. He's eternal. And there was a time when there was nothing but God. He's the only eternal one. And then God brought into existence or created all that there is. Everything else, he created our universe. And only God can bring something out of nothing. So there was a time there was nothing but God, and then God brought something out of nothing. Here is a question that I would encourage you to remember that you could ask when you talk to someone who doesn't believe in the God who is the creator and somebody who has a, a different worldview. Sometimes you might feel intimidated. I don't know all the things to answer. Well, here's just a question you can ask that you could raise. How did something come from nothing? How did something come from nothing? You see, scientists today agree that the universe had a beginning. Before the 20th century, scientists thought the universe had always been here, that matter was eternal. Now, the evidence from Hubble Telescope and all those things is they know the, the universe is expanding. It had a beginning. So science has come back around to Genesis 1 in the beginning. So if it had a beginning, how did it come into being? How did something come from nothing? Is it more logical to assume that there was nothing, 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 something? Does that make sense to you? 
that just something just arose out of nothing? Or is it more logical to believe that there is an eternal God who has always been here and He brought something out of nothing, that He created everything? To me, it's far more logical than to believe that, okay, there was nothing and then there's something. It's far more logical to believe there's a God who did that. So there's just a question you can raise in a conversation with people. You don't have to know all the theories, all the answers. How did something come from nothing? And the most logical answer is there is a God who has been eternal who created everything. Our second word our title that describes God that we're learning in Isaiah 40 through 45 is that God is maker. Now the word maker means to form or fashion or shape out of pre-existing materials. So God is also maker. Now we're makers. You know I said that we don't create according to the Bible. We're not a creator. But we are makers, aren't we? I, I, I admire people who can make things I had a friend who carved wood, did these wood carvings. I said, man, how do you do that? And he said, well, if you want to carve an elephant, you just cut away all the stuff that doesn't look like an elephant. I said, well, that's real helpful to me, yeah. Uh, I have grandkids that love to make things. And so Cindy has a craft box at our house. And it has all of these uh, pipe cleaners and construction paper and glue and little googly eyes and all these things. And so they make things. They fashion or form or shape out of pre-existing materials and they like to make things. I used to watch on television, I don't know if any of you are old enough to have seen it, I used to watch on television this guy called, whose name was Bob Ross. He was a painter. He had this big afro out to about right here and he talked softly. And in a half hour program, he would do a painting from beginning to end, from blank canvas to finished product. And he would do, oh, the little bush lives right here. Let's put a little bush right here. And you would think, this is going nowhere. And then by the end, he had made this, usually a landscape, this landscape painting in a half hour. And I think, how did he do that? I've tried uh, one time... uh, uh, doing pottery on a potter's wheel. Have you ever thrown pottery on a potter's wheel? Tried it in an art class one time. One of the things I first learned that they taught us was you've got to get that clay right in the center of that wheel. Because believe me, if you don't, it'll go whoop, 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 whoop. That's not good. That's not a good thing. But it always amazed me how somebody who knew what they were doing could form or fashion or make a, a bowl or a pitcher out of that clay. All of these are examples of makers. Now, God is a maker too. The Bible says that out of the dust of the ground, he formed Adam. He made us out of pre-existing material, out of the dust of the ground. But here's the difference. We're makers like God, but here's the difference. And here's the second question you can ask your friends if you want to be able to discuss about the God who's the creator and the maker. First, you can ask them, how did something come from nothing? Second, you can ask the question, how did life come from non-life? Because there's how God is different from us as a maker. We make in imitation of the maker, but God, but we just make inanimate stuff. Paintings and pictures and craft projects. But God took the dust of the ground and made animals and birds and human beings. He fashioned 
us, and only God can do that. And science cannot answer that question. How did life come from non-life? They cannot duplicate it in the, libra- in the laboratory. They cannot explain it because that is something only God can do. In all of our fashioning and making, we can't create life, and God is the maker who brought life out of non-life. Let me show you a key verse that has both of these concepts. Chapter 45 of Isaiah is where we're looking today. And a key verse is verse 18. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says... I am the Lord and there is no other. He's the one true living God, the creator of everything, the maker of life. Why does Isaiah talk about this? Isaiah talks a lot about this if you read these five chapters. In fact, the word create, 13 times in these five chapters, only 11 times in all of Genesis. So Isaiah 40 through 45 talks more about creation than even Genesis does. Why does Isaiah making such a big point that God is the creator and the maker. Because I believe these Israelites are going to be in a hostile culture in which other people don't hold in the dominant view to their worldview. They've come from Israel believing there's one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, and they've encountered the Babylonian gods who said they made everything. You remember the story of Daniel and his three friends? And Daniel and his friends are indoctrinated in Babylon into the Babylonian dress and diet and language and culture and philosophy, and they're, they're indoctrinating them. And maybe they're beginning to doubt, well, you know, our God, he didn't save us from exile, and they got these other gods in their culture Maybe he's not the one true God. Maybe he's not the creator. And Isaiah shares this greatness of God to encourage them. I think we're in a similar situation, don't you? I think we are living in a culture that is increasingly hostile to a worldview that believes there's one true God who created everything that there is out of nothing. And our young people, especially as they go to college, encounter a Darwinian materialism that says everything evolved from nothing different from the worldview that we have and we need to 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 assert this worldview that is credible and logical and and that there's a god who's creator of everything i believe that kids ought to learn the view of evolution it's the predominant theory you ought to know it better than non-christian kids but i want you to know that you do not have to apologize for a biblical worldview because Darwinism cannot answer these big questions. Darwinism can explain some change. Darwin on the Galapagos Islands saw that finches adapted to eat different uh, diets. We have, there's truth in everything. In, there, in every era, there's some truth. And microevolution is true. It explains some adaptation. But it cannot explain the macro, macroevolution is not true. It cannot explain the origin of everything and the origin of life. And that's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says that God created everything according to kinds. And within those kinds, there's been adaptation. But there has not been that evolution between. There is a God who created everything. Francis Schaeffer, um, theologian and philosopher, wrote a book, No Final Conflict. And what he was saying there was, when we understand the Bible and we understand science, there is no final conflict between the two because there's one God who's the creator of everything and all truth is God's truth. 
And part of our misunderstanding is we don't understand science perfectly. We don't understand the Bible perfectly. But when we understand them uh, perfectly, we'll understand there's no final conflict. There is a God who is the creator. Well, what's the implication of this? If God's the creator of everything and the maker of all life, what is the implication for our lives? Isaiah shares two in this chapter that I want to share with you. Number one, because God is the creator of everything, we must submit to his plans. The first implication for your life and my life, if this is true, if there's one true living God, he's the creator of everything, then we must submit to his plans. Look, let me show you that in chapter 45, verse 9. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. There's our title, one of our titles for God, right? He's the maker. And this verse says, woe to those who quarrel with him. Maybe some of these Israelites were complaining to God about their situation. It's not fair, God. Have you ever said to God, you're not fair? Maybe they didn't like the situation they were in and they were quarreling or complaining. And God says, woe to those who quarrel with their maker. And look at the last part of the verse. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? You get the comparison here? When a potter is working on clay on a potter's wheel, does the clay say to the potter, I really don't think you should have made a bowl, you should have made a pitcher out of me. That's dumb, isn't it? It has no standing, no ability, no right to talk to the potter. The potter is in supreme, sovereign control of the clay. And for us to complain to God is like clay complaining to a potter, he says. Maybe in your life, you're not happy with where you are right now. And you've, you've questioned God, complained. Maybe you're sort of angry at God. I believe God is open to honest questions. We see that in the Psalms. I think you can bring your questions to God. But in the end, if he's really the creator of everything, then what we have to do is say, God, I don't understand what you're doing in my life. I don't like the way that things are going. These aren't the circumstances I prayed for, but you're God. And I'm not. And I submit to you. Maybe that's where you are today and you've been wrestling, you've been struggling, you've been unhappy with some things in your life and you need to say to God, God, I don't understand this, I don't like this. But you're God and I submit to you. In the next verse, verse 10, he compares and makes another comparison. Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? Does a kid have a right to say to a parent, I really don't think you should have had me. Or, I really don't think you should have had these brothers and sisters of mine. I don't want you to have any more kids. No, the kids have no standing. The parents have the right to make that decision. And so he says from that in verse 11, This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hand? Verse 12, it is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. If he's really the creator, we submit to his plans. 
And then the next verse says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. If you were with us last week, we talked about Cyrus in the saving plan of God. And this is a Persian king that God was going to raise up and use to conquer Babylon to set the people free. And in this context, he's mentioning it again about complaining. It may have been that when they heard this earlier in chapter 44 about Cyrus, that they didn't like God's plan. No, wait a minute, couldn't you raise up an Israelite king? Why are you raising up a pagan king that's going to set us free? Maybe they were complaining about that. And God is saying, I'm sovereign, I'll carry out my plan. Now folks, that has some implications for us in a week following an election. Maybe you don't like the results of the election. And maybe you say, God, why'd you give us that leader? That's not the leader I wanted. Why'd you give us that leader, God? I don't like that. And in the end, you know what we have to say? You're the potter. We're the clay. We don't like it. We don't, we don't, we don't want what you have wanted for us. We don't know what your purpose is. We don't know where this is going. But you're the creator of everything. And in the end, we submit to your plans. There's a second implication here that he shares with us. Because God is the creator of everything, he's the only one who can save. So he links salvation to creation and he says because God is the creator of everyone, everything, he's the only one who can save. Look at verse 20 and following. Gather together and come, assemble you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood who pray to gods that cannot save. So you see, if the evolutionary view of religion is true, that every culture just developed their own God and made their own God, and, and so every culture's got a God and, and it fulfills a need in their lives, a niche in their lives, well then, if that's true, it doesn't matter what God you worship. Whatever helps you, makes you feel better, you know, one's as good as another. But if the biblical worldview is true, that there is one God and he made everything and everything else is created, then the implication is all other gods are idols and they cannot save. You get it? And so he says in the next verse, verse 21, declare what it is, what is to be, present it, let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. And if God was the only eternal one and he's created everything else, then all other gods are created. He's the only creator. And so the implication is he's the only one who can save. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That verse tells you how to be saved. If you want to be saved from your sin and from hell and from death, if you want to be saved from hopelessness and meaninglessness, if you want to be saved from the futility of life, then turn to God and be saved. That's how you're saved. Turning means conversion. That's why we talk of conversion. You turn from sin and self and other gods 
and you turn to the one true living God. That's repentance, turning from sin. That's faith, turning to God. That's how you're saved. This verse says, if you will turn today, if you'll be converted, there has to be a change in your outlook in life. If you'll turn to me, you can be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The next verse says, verse 23, By myself I have sworn, my mouth is uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. You might have heard similar words to that if you know your Bible in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. You may know that New Testament passage where Paul said, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, this is where Paul got that from. He got those words from this passage in Isaiah 45 when Isaiah first said that God says before me every knee will bow. Because he's the one true living God, then there will come a day when all created order will acknowledge that. And the knee of Confucius and the knee of Muhammad and the knee of Darwin and the knee of Putin and the knee of Trump and the knee of Biden and every knee will bow before the one true God in acknowledgement of this truth. That's the end game. And it says in verse 24, They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. You get the exclusiveness all through this passage. There's one God, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. If you're looking for some help in your life, and you're looking for it, Somewhere besides the one true living God of the Bible, you will be frustrated in disappointment because he says, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. If you're looking for strength in some pop culture icon, some book, some TV personality, some philosophy, some uh, movement, some guru, some fad, you'll be disappointed because strength and deliverance are in the one true God alone. Why don't you turn to him for strength and deliverance? He says, all who have raged against me will come to him and be put to shame. But, verse 25, all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord. You can be a true descendant of Israel, grafted onto the nation of Israel by faith in Jesus Christ. You can find deliverance in the Lord and make your boast in him. Because he's the one true God, We submit to his plans, and he's the only one who can save us. Let me end by telling you a story. It's a story of a guy in France, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, because I don't know French. Some of you French speakers can help me after the service. His last name is B-I-G-N-O-N. I don't know how you say that in France. You can help me later. But he grew up in Paris, and he grew up as an atheist. He didn't believe in God, didn't have any religious background, believed that our world just was by chance and random and there's no overarching guiding hand. He went to college and became an engineer, studied math, chemistry, engineering, bought into an atheistic worldview. He also grew to be six feet four and became a volleyball player. And so he played on the French national team and every weekend toured the nation uh, playing on their national volleyball team. And he says a part of that culture that in their locker room was to brag about the conquests of women. And so uh, that was part of his lifestyle. And he met a Christian girl. 
and he liked her. But she told him that she believed that there was a God who was in control of everything, and she believed that God's will was for intimacy to be reserved for marriage. And he was curious about this, and he decided he wanted to to find out about her Christianity so that he could disprove it, so that he could get her, well, you figure out the rest. That's his motivation. So he starts investigating Christianity in order to disprove it, in order to get this girl. And in in the course of it, he said, you know, God, if you're there, then you ought to be able to show me. Sort of put God to the test. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this not really believing, but if you're there, you ought to be able to show me. He said just a few weeks later, his shoulder began to hurt, and he couldn't play volleyball on the weekends. He went to a doctor, and the doctor said, there's been no injury, you're just going to have to rest this. And he said, so my weekends were suddenly free, and she invited me to go to church. And he went to church, and he said, I went to church like you would go to a zoo to see the exotic animals, you know. Looking at the monkeys and the gorilla, you know, like a zoo. And he said, I got to the end of that service and I started to just bolt out of there. And I said, wait a minute. I'm, if I'm going to investigate this, I need to do it right. So he went up to the pastor after the service and said, do you believe in God? Well, that's, yeah, I don't know. Pastor said, yes. And, but from that, they began to meet every week. And they began, he began to ask him these questions. And the pastor began to show him the logic of a Christian worldview, that it's easier to believe that there's an eternal God who brought something from nothing than to believe that nothingness just spontaneously brought our universe into being. And he began to show them that science cannot show the origin of life, but that the biblical worldview explains the maker who brought life out of nothing. And so he says, I began to pray more earnestly, if you're real, God, show me. And he said, God, I thought God's going to do something, something spectacular. And instead, what he did, he said, he awakened my conscience. And I began to see my guilt. And the lifestyle I had been living was damaging me. And it was damaging the lives of other people. And he said, I saw my guilt and I didn't know how to get rid of it. And one night he said, I was lying there in bed and it hit me, this is why Jesus had to die. We are guilty and there's no way out of our guilt. And he can take it away. And he turned from his sin and turned to God and was saved. And today he's a theology teacher in France. That's what the one true living God can do because he's the creator. We submit to his plans because he's the creator. He's the only one who can save us. Would you turn to him and be saved? Let's pray together. Oh God, maybe there's somebody here today who's wrestling with questions, doubting whether you're real not sure what they believe. And I pray today that you'd reveal yourself to them as the creator and the maker. And I pray that perhaps today there's a person here who's at that point, like this Frenchman came, 
where they're willing to turn to you and be saved and find in you strength and deliverance. And so I pray right now, by your grace, through their repentance and faith, you will regenerate them and cause them to be born again and they would be able to see clearly and have life and hope and peace and joy. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.